every great dream begins with dreamers. Tom and Steve are strangers in a strange land. Join them on the journey from ignorance to knowledge, one book at a time, one chapter at a time. All aboard the Blunderground Railroad. My name is Tom, and with my wingman, Steve. How you doing? We are with you today on the Blunderground Railroad, and today, hey, is a very special day. Uh, we are starting something I've been wanting to do for a really long time. Uh, we've uh, worked with Harry Blue Myers, uh, and we over at uh, A Christian Mind, uh, and that is great preparation for something I've been talking about for a bit. It's not even close to enough preparation. Oh, man. <laughs> this is uh, this is great. So uh, this is really great. So uh, I have had uh, my, uh, my, good, my, my good dear friend, Robert Burns, uh, who uh, uh, is a dear friend of mine, a pastor friend, uh, and he introduced me to this book and was really affected him. And he, he introduced me to this book, wanted me to read it. And uh, so I have. I've spent many years uh, kind of pondering the book and going over the book. Uh, and it's, it's a pretty incredible book. It really changed my life. I'm really uh, grateful to Rob for, uh, for introducing it to me. Um, I, I would say... Uh, that this particular moment in the life of the author, okay, the author's name is Herbert Schlossberg. And uh, so Schlossberg, uh, just to give you a bit of a background on him, uh, he was born uh, in 1935, and uh, he lived uh, 84 years. Uh, he grew up in a Jewish home in Brooklyn, New York, and he ended up, uh, he ended up uh, was a, a voracious reader. He liked to read. He could read many, many books, uh, but didn't do well in school uh, and falling out, failing out of college. Um, but um, which probably tells you, I guess that story he means he was a genius. I guess, right? Isn't that always the story of geniuses? Yeah, they get bored. Yeah, in I college. Guess, oh yeah, I guess that's true. They would get bored in college, right? Mm. A guy, so, a guy this smart. I would think he got bored in college. Oh, yeah, I guess so. Well, reading the book, I mean, you know, yeah, I guess so. If you're going to be the kind of person to write a book like Idols for Destruction and uh, you're sitting around in your average college class. But, yeah, he got out of college and went to the military, so I don't know if he thought he was going to find his, you know, academic, like, equals in there, but well, you know, but given my experience. See, the thing is that <laughs> in the military, see, once he left college and got into the military, he was a, a paratrooper, right? So yeah. maybe I don't think it was the intellectual stimulation he was looking for in the military. Maybe he just wanted to jump out of the airplane, you know? I, I hope not because he would have been severely disappointed. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell you what, man, if you're, if you're the kind of person who's going to write a book like Idols for Destruction— and you're looking for a thrill, you're probably going to have to jump out of that airplane in order to get that kind of a thrill, I would think. You just have to be crazy enough. They're on the same level of crazy to even try to read this book. I mean, right? Well, so like a paratrooper. <laughs> so, so uh, like, I don't have a very limited understanding of what a paratrooper is or does. So, like, what would that be? Like, what would someone, what would a paratrooper do? Uh, I don't know. My brother has, uh, like, a million jumps under his belt. And he's oh, really? 82nd Airborne, exact same unit, uh, exact same. Very nice. Um, basis so has your brother has your brother written a book like this <laughs> no no <laughs> no well maybe we could give this to your brother me and my brother could collaborate for the next 300 years and not write the first chapter of this thing <laughs> well man wow well maybe he's got to jump out of a few more airplanes maybe yeah we both have to hit our head and then be on some sort of psychedelic drug to come the, the, 
I'm reading through this book and the words, I'm like, there are like 13 words in the first chapter. I'm like, I, I need a mm. dictionary to even know what this means. Right. No, I know. I know. It's pretty wild. It's a heavy lift, man. It is a pretty heavy lift. So today, yeah, and I think you'll have a little bit more time in order to take a look at some of those words because today we're going to do a little bit of background on uh, Schlossberg himself and then we're going to cover the introduction, which is enough, right? <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, it is enough. <laughs> Plenty. Uh, so we'll see, and then we'll hit up. Uh, we'll hit up chapter number one. I believe there are eight chapters, different idols of different, uh, uh, different. Uh, um, yeah, and they're broken down into sections. So don't let that fool you, as it did me. Ah, yes. Oh, yes, yes, yes. That's right. The sections there. That's right. Each one is is broken down into sections. It's pretty wonderful once you get into it. You know, and once you get beyond that. <laughs> once first. you get what past the depression, if you're like, oh, it's the first page. Yes. Ooh, that, that looks like this is a chapter. You're right. Wrong. Right. <laughs> Right, no, I, I, I hear you. It's this thing pretty, is a monster. It, it is, but it's a beautiful monster. It makes, it makes a Christian mind look like a goosebump book from R.L. Stein. <laughs> so no, no offense, R.L. Stein. I loved your right? books. No, read, no, read yeah, most of them. But no, this is a real, uh, it's a real powerhouse because uh, what he does is, is he takes on the daunting task of see, um, Blumeyer's just points out the lack of a Christian mind, right? The Blue Myers is saying, oh, well, most people don't think of a Christian mind. Instead, they mostly think with a mostly secular mind. And listen, that's a profound statement right there. And you can write a whole book about it, which he did. I'm going to say he did. <laughs> yeah, and it's a, it's an amazing book. And if you'd like to know more about it, you can pick up a copy and then go through it chapter by chapter with Tom and Steve because we, we have that. Go back and take a look. Yeah. Uh, great book. But what Schlossberg has done is just a cut above, right? He's basically taken the secular mind that Blumeyers talks about and has said, we're going to isolate every assumption. We're going to look at it in isolation, in the light, and we are going to, we are going to, we are going to, we are going to burn it with fire and we're going to see what remains, what draws. We're going to burn off the dross and we're going to see what remains. And, and did we mention the title? Because that's probably relevant. Well, yeah, uh, certainly the, the, the title here. Uh, yeah, no, certainly the title. Uh, the title is, uh, well, here, let me. Get, uh, I'm going to uh, keep going on his history a little on bit. On the author? Yeah, on the author, just a little bit. And then All right, we'll build gonna, suspense to the title. We're going to hit there. We're going to build some suspense to the title here. So, <laughs> the um, But no, uh, he did eventually go back after the military, going back into school, and uh, he ended up uh, getting his Ph.D. Uh, he ended up, uh, so I guess he wasn't as bored. He went to Minnesota, because I guess the colleges in Minnesota are not as boring as the ones in New York. Is That, that would be the implication here? I think if you ask anybody in modern, I don't know, I didn't live back then. Modern day, yeah, I, I would think Minnesota is probably more boring than New York. Yeah, you given the say. fact, that, I mean, it's the Big Apple, man. It's a lot going on. Well, I don't know. I don't man, know. Cause I, listen, man, I the know people. That's a different story. All right. So if if you you can go to New York, or you can head on through the flyover states. And you can pick yourself up one of them Iowa cornbread girls. Like he and did. Then, yeah, and then you can go get yourself a PhD in some fancy sound uh, thing like European intellectual history. Over the course of a four-year sabbatical. Man, I'll tell you, well, okay, so if that's if, if you want to end up in a, in, a, in a place where Schlossberg ended up, then that's exactly what you want to do. And the reason is because that's exactly what he did. So uh, Schlossberg ended up, he did, he got a PhD uh, from the University of Minnesota, and in um, that, he was a PhD in European intellectual history, and he married uh, a young lady by the name of Terry Benz, who was uh, from Iowa. She was an Iowa cornbread farm girl. Yep. And so, um, I, I guess that's what you need to do. So, uh, and it kind of comes down to, maybe it doesn't come down to being corn corn fed, but. Um, <laughs> this is an amazing the story. The work ethic that comes out of there, I think, is what 
what he needed. Man, I tell you what, man, because he had got God. God really had his back because he needed a workhorse. He needed someone who was going to be there with him no matter what. And so, yeah, he ended up uh, becoming an academic dean. He ended up in West Virginia, so he was at a, a university here uh, in West Virginia. Uh, and when he was there, uh, he felt a calling, and he felt the calling. Uh, and so I guess you could say it was a calling, uh, whether it was uh, whether it was an actual theological calling, like God reached out to him and God spoke to him and told him to do it, or whether it's used in a looser connotation. I'm not sure. Who knows? But, uh, God and him. Yeah, but I do know that uh, he did refer to it as a—it was referred to as a calling. And so anyhow, uh, the calling was that he was to confront the idols of modern American life. Uh, and in order to do this, he needed he needed to become, he needed to read, he needed to get into the nitty-gritty. He needed to isolate all of the unspoken assumptions behind modern life, and he needed to hold them up piece by piece to the light so he could see what was worthy and what was dross. And did he ever? Boy, and did he ever. So we got to give a big kudos here. You know, big hand clap, all right? So we got to give a big hand clap to Terry. All right, big Terry, there we go. Yeah, big hand clap. Very nice. I, I think we should get we should get the official one in here. Oh, man, we do. We got it. I think you should. There we go. We got to have the official one. And you, Terry, Terry deserves book, it. For a book like this, I, I just can't. Absolutely. I'm, I don't know. I kind of want to throw another one in there for his wife, but I don't want to be redundant. I'm just saying. Oh, man, like, no, you really do, man. What? I tell you. Wow. Terry, I tell you what, Terry Schlossberg, man, said this is a uh, this is this is a woman who, upon hearing her wife, her husband's calling, decided that he needed to take four years, or that's how long he took, but yeah. he needed to take time to be able to achieve what he needed to do. So she, so he stopped working. He was the academic dean. I mean, I'm sure they had some money saved, you know, but which made things a little easier. But uh, 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 but they did have kids. They have children, and hey, you know, children they'll eat up the savings pretty quick. Yeah. Uh, so the um, so anyhow, uh, he stopped working. He quit his job, and she went to work. So um, she took a full time job, and she worked full time. She managed the children, and she managed the household, while Herbert took the next four years from 1978. All the way until 1982, and went to the library. That's insane. It's wild. Four years. Four. That's four Christmases. That's insane. That's four birthdays. At twelve, three kids. Yeah, and, and three <laughs> three children. And so this is. He went to the library and he researched it out. He went and he read all the books. So the the authors that he quotes, the books that he quotes, he would just read them all. So he would say he would go in and he would say like philosophy. He would say well. In order to do this, I'm going to need to know a lot. I'm going to need to know the history of philosophy. So I better get reading. So he would go and he'd say a philosopher like Hegel. So he'd go and all, and he'd read Hegel. He'd read like the whole library. You know. And you watched a documentary on this, right? That that said all that. Like, well, he, no, but he would give uh, he would give various interviews. And so, uh, like, if you go on YouTube, you can see various interviews that he gave. Um, over the years, and so he kind of hints about these things, you know, like yeah. he'll get questions and he'll kind of he'll he'll mention it and um, he'll kind of talk about it and um, and uh, and so you kind of piece it together, you know. So uh, it's not like one single thing uh, where it comes out as a, a single quote, but yeah. you know, you kind of piece this together by listening to it, and it's pretty incredible. I mean, he didn't seem it didn't it wasn't a big deal to him as it was to me. Like when I when I hear about it, for me, it just it 
blows my mind. Well, it's a massive undertaking. It's just it's a massive undertaking. But here's the thing, like, with Schlossberg. Schlossberg felt accountable to God and to no man, you know? He, and so that is just... That is, is just amazing. It's amazing to have, like, that kind of faith is always so inspiring. And to be able to sit uh, in the presence of that kind of faith is is, is so wonderful. And, and, you know, iron sharpening iron, you know, just to look at what is possible. When people forsake man and they they, they, they do what God wants them to do. You know? Yeah. And I don't think you have to uh, go write a 600 and some odd page um, book to... Uh you know, to to prove your allegiance to God or, or anything like that. Yeah, no, um, I don't though, think so. Though this was certainly a huge sacrifice, you know, I, I think it, I think to do this, you have to be the type of person that enjoys, um, I, I'm not taking away from the sacrifice here, but you have to be the type of person that enjoys, you know, reading and studying and writing. Otherwise, you just get burnt out. You You wouldn't be able to accomplish something at the level that he managed to accomplish here. Like, yeah. I thought I was a pretty intelligent person until I opened this book and I got about a page and a half in and I was like, whoa. Yeah, we all feel that way, man. Don't, thing. don't single yourself out. And the, the review, uh, I was it was nice to know I wasn't alone because as I'm looking up the reviews, I'm like, yeah. you know, am I the only, like, dumb person here? Right. Every it, Most of the reviews were like, this book is not for everyone because it's written at such a high level. Five-star review, but yep. it's not for everyone. Right. <laughs> I'm like, well, that's true because... I'm lost. Yeah. That he says, though, you know, and I, I kind of thought about this after, like, yeah. why can't he just say this stuff in normal speak? Which he he pretty much says it right there in the, the first chapter, I believe, is actually when he does say it, which I guess we'll we'll cover next time around. But Yeah, no, he, he kind of does. But see, the thing is, is that that's not, and that's not where, that's not where these battles are fought. You know, these battles are not fought down at the local watering hole, you know, like, um. I mean, everybody's got this. Everybody's got this. Um, everybody's got this romantic vision, you know. And maybe, it, I, you know, I always think of, um, for example, uh, C.S. Lewis and uh, and uh, Tolkien and uh, and all their. They, they had their little group of the the Oxford professors. You know, it's everyone's got that vision. The Oxford profe- the Oxford professors going down to the local pot, the local pub. You know, yeah. And um, you know, uh, you got, uh, you know. Um, you know, you got uh, you got C.S. Lewis, you know, smoking his pipe, you know, and then you got uh, you know, you got uh, Tolkien there, you know, and he's uh, uh, you know, he's sipping on a pint, and they're all talking theology and philosophy, and everybody is uh, everybody's kind of listening in, and there's all this big romantic vision that people have of this, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, really, you know, as nice as it would be to have these conversations at the local tavern, you know, like they don't happen there; they happen in these. The, in the halls of academia. And so I think Schlossberg, knowing, you know, you're not going to go into the army barracks and change the world. You know, you're going to change the world <laughs> by going, and you're going to have to, you're going to have to fight with the top levels of academia and media and all these different places. And this is where all those narratives are baked in, like all those assumptions are baked in. And that's where it really begins and ends for Schlossberg is at the level of assumption, specifically unspoken assumptions. Yeah. I saw that he mentioned in the, uh, mentioned assumptions in there and, uh, I knew you'd be pretty excited about that. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, no doubt, no doubt. Like I said, the book changed my life, you know. So um, the uh, so when he did that, he he got a calling, and the calling was to the calling was to put down in words really what we see in the title, and that's where you were saying about the title here. Here we go. The title. 
Idols for Destruction, okay? Christian Faith and Its Confrontation with American Society. See, and the title sounds simple enough. There you go, right? <laughs> right? Well, I think it's really profound. I mean, you know, for Salzburg in 1983 or 1977 or whatever it was, right? to, to because we know that, listen, um, Meyers was written in 1961. I know we're it's the Dead Poet Society. Not, <laughs> everybody, <laughs> these right. books were all published before I was born. That's right. So it was in 1961, and then he was projecting out the cultural decline that we see even then. He was uh, he was looking towards the future and sounding the alarm in 1961. So for Schlossberg in 1977, this was 16 years later. And he's like, okay, you know, this is getting so bad that we need to go deeper. We need to, we need to kick it up a notch, right? And so that was a night. And here we are now in 2023. It's been 40 years. Now it's 40 years later. And so, because I think in 1977 or 1980, to say that the Christian faith had to confront American society. Maybe I'm not saying that was a bridge too far. I mean, you had your Francis Schaeffers and you had a lot of other people who were kind of advancing this narrative, but it was still something fairly theoretical. Take the word American out of there, though, out of that statement. Oof, when has that not been true? Yeah, no, I, I think that's, uh, yeah, and I, I agree. I, I agree. Uh, you know, and I do, um, yeah, it's true. When has that not been true? But I think, especially in America and in other places of the world, it's worse. To be honest, but oh, any first world country is bad. Yeah, any first world country. <laughs> we really, and, and this is where you know where you're going to have, um, you know, people like, for example, with Aaron Wren. You know, uh, it's like there you go. See, Aaron Slosberg and say Harold Slosberg and Aaron Wren. So you could put these two people in the same sentence. That's a pretty big deal. Oh, I mean, it's a pretty man. great thing, right? I mean, that's pretty. It's, it's pretty great. It's your favorites. It's my favorite. Well, I mean, I do have my favorites. Those are pretty good. So, but anyhow, you know, and uh, Aaron Wren talks about the positive world and the negative world, and uh, the positive world and the neutral world and the negative world. Positive world where it's very positive to be a Christian. So, social scripts and Christian practice, same thing. And if you're a Christian, it's a positive thing. Neutral world is basically identity. Hey, you want to be a Christian? Fine. Doesn't matter to me, but it's good for you. And society generally, uh, you know, is not adversarial to Christians. Right. And in a negative world, they are adversarial to Christians. And like right? everything else, the middle class is eroding. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, yeah, and there you go. That's true. Yeah. So, like, for example, in the UK, I mean, right, and in Canada, right? So, like, places like the UK and Canada, it's much worse. So, in the UK, you have people that are, uh, people are praying in front of buildings and they're dragged out because they can't be seen praying in public. Or uh, there are, um, for example, in the UK, there are movements to establish God as a gender-neutral uh, uh, individual. Oh, to nice. say that, that God is gender neutral, so therefore that people who worship God that are gender neutral are closer to God than I guess other people would be. I don't know. So, and in Canada, uh, for example, they will arrest a pastor, uh, like pastors who want to organize protests against uh, drag shows are being arrested. But that's not allowed up there? Uh, I, I guess not. You know, they consider it to be an act of extremism. Like, I know we have the First Amendment, they don't have the same constitution, obviously, but they don't they don't have like like freedom of speech and assembly and all that. Yeah, they they, they consider it to be an act of extremism. So huh. for them it's an act of extremism. I know we're headed that way anyway. Yeah, no, we are, but it's already happening in places. And so there is coming a time when Christians are going to have to confront whether they want to or not 
the spirit of the age, right? And yeah. so, uh, and we'll talk about that a little bit here too. Uh, and so, um, and how do we do that? How is it done? What does it look like when it's being done effectively? And how do we incorporate that into our lives? Well, those are three fundamental questions that if you are a believer that you need to answer. And Herbert Schlossberg can help you answer it. And this book that was published in 1983, Idols for Destruction. Uh, this is a, uh, this is a, um, uh, the title of the book is based off of a, a biblical quote, actually. And from Hosea, right? Yeah, yeah, from Hosea. It's actually Hosea 8.4. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, they they, what, they created idols to their own destruction or something like that? Uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, I can't remember uh, exactly how, how that's quoted, but... Yeah, no, and I, I think it's quoted... Uh, I'm not sure what uh, translation the, that particular uh, that, that particular one is. is you know, I didn't from. even check that, actually. You didn't know, but I know it is. Uh, you're right. Uh, you're, 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 you're closer to... Uh, you're closer to it than than uh, than I am uh, here. Um, yeah. Well, well, let's let's find that real quick. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna just, find just it real quick. I wanna I wanna be able to get that right. Yep. You know. No, absolutely. And I prefer so. to go to the KJV. It's just I don't know. It's my own preference. Whatever. Yep. No, that's fine. Uh, so Steve and I are gonna read out of the King James Bible, and uh, we're in the book of Hosea, and yeah. it's uh, chapter eight, verse four. Got it here too. Go ahead, Steve. Yeah. It says uh, they have set up kings, but not by me. They have made princes and i knew it not of their silver and their gold have they made them idols that they may be cut off mm. yep so that's so the 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 other version then um that actually uses destruction i don't know what version that comes from right um, no, i i agree but it's not the kjv clearly yes no that's right but it's the it's the exact same idea um and and we've talked about uh idolization before too that it doesn't have to rise to the level of people think of like you have to you know worship the golden calf yeah you know to reach the level of idolization and that's not it anything that's in your life that you spend more time thinking about or, or uh, pressing towards than god mm-hmm. that places you in idolization you're that's your idol yeah. whatever you know whatever that is yep no absolutely um, no it's true yeah, this one of the things here, and yeah, uh, I you know when he says that he says that they may be cut off. So what he means is they have made them idols that they may be cut off. It's always literally cutting off. I mean, it's literally, it's uh, so when he says they have made themselves idols for uh, for their own destruction, you know, to be cut off, separated like, from God, beheading. So it's literally a beheading, like someone would be take off your head. Oh. So it's like a, it's like a, like a like a to be cut off like a, the idols will cut you off. You had to cut off from God. Yeah, yeah. So uh, yeah, go ahead. No, uh, I was just gonna say like <clears throat> there's one thing in this in this summary, and it's the that summary that you showed me, which we can't seem to find who did this summary, but it was genius, really. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I know very much so. Legions of ordinary people know how to use such ideas as inferior inferiority complex, relativity, pragmatism. Although scarcely any of them have read a page of Freud, Einstein, or Dewey. And that was like so profound to me because I was like, yeah. I can't put this into the wor- into words, but I understand the concepts, even though this chapter is taking me forever to read. Right, <laughs> you right. Know? Yeah. Even the introduction's really wordy and, and hard yeah, to get is. through. Yep. <clears throat> but I was like, man, I, I know this stuff. Like it's, it's baked into me, but I, yeah, I've never opened up. I mean, I don't know. I guess I've read a little bit of Freud, but nothing more. Like, I'm not going to sit here and quote him. There's no way. 
Yeah, but uh, see, a lot of these things you're baked in, right? I mean, a lot of these things. This is the way. This is the the really the crux of the book. Okay, so if you read the book and you don't ever intend to, you know, go protesting or you're not gonna go confront someone or you're not gonna try to change the world, this book is essential, simply to understand how your thinking becomes your enemy. Right? There are so many believers and so many people out there that walk through a day. All right, and they, their worst enemy, they're being assaulted every moment of the day by their absolute worst enemy. And that worst enemy is their own thoughts, right? Yeah. It's not some guy or some dude. It's not, it's not some arbitrary thing on social media. It's not. It's their own thoughts. They Which stem from their hearts. Exactly. And what did, what did God do? Their, he, he noticed that their hearts were evil continually. Right. Yeah. Right. That's right. Their, and their, their thoughts were only evil continually, but that it stems from the heart. Right. And Blumeyer's, right. Bl- Blumeyer's really, he was the one I think, and uh, that did a good job of really pointing out how people can become double-minded. Right. People can become, uh, they become very double-minded this yep. way. Yeah. And so they 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 claim one belief, but they act on another. And so that was the difference between the secular mind and the Christian mind. Yep. So they say, well, I'm of a Christian mind because they can articulate the right words but actually they don't they act like they're of a secular mind because their thinking controls their actions That's right and if you're able to get through this book herbert sloshberg will show you the exact pinpoints that assault you every day and if you can get rid of i don't know more than half of them your life <laughs> oh, like your life will become so <laughs> much better. it's a case of you don't know what you don't know because you, you probably don't even know half of them because yeah. it's complacency. No, it's true. And I've I've had this happen in my life where I have worked to uh, eliminate some of these ways of thinking, these patterns of thinking. Yeah. And if you can get to 50%, your life will be so much better, you'll feel like a completely different person. And if you can get to 60 or 70 or 80%, I mean, don't get me wrong. Listen, there's always going to be things that you struggle with and things that will dog you no matter what. But if man, you can get it, some of the stuff that you point out. That some of the low hanging fruit. Even yeah. if you can take some of that low hanging fruit and start to change your way of thinking, I mean, wow, it will result in a massive change in your life, and it will um, reinvigorate your faith as well, yeah. because it, it allows the the Holy Spirit and the Word of God room to breathe and work and maneuver in your own life, because you're no longer clinging to some of these ideas. You know, and things that can make you afraid, right? You look around and you see everyone acting a certain way and you think, well, if I act differently, then, you know, that that, that means that I have a reason to be afraid. Schlossberg will show you where everyone else goes wrong. And then when you're no longer afraid, you, you can now act on behalf of others. You know, you can act in a selfless manner, right? Rather, you're talking like afraid of like not getting something right, so to speak? I, yeah, I mean, or, or, or being afraid of, of acting or... It's just, if you're double-minded and you're you're have one action that doesn't necessarily match your thoughts, then it, it, what happens is it creates confusion, and confusion can lead to fear because when you you need to act in an atmosphere of confusion, that's where the fear can come from. Right, a lot of times because you're confused about where you need to go, about what you need to do. Right, so uh, where you get that kind of confusion. Uh, and so being able to speak clearly about some of your own motivations uh, is very powerful. At least that's what I have found personally. So when you're talking about speaking clearly like to, to your thoughts or whatever, yes. as I was going through the introduction, I noticed a 
a phrase in there, spirit of the age. Oh, so and, true. And I've heard that from you before. And now I was like, oh, maybe that's where he gets it. And yeah, no, it's the- true. A lot of it is. If you if you hear my voice in the book, then it's it's not me, right? It's, it's, I've read the book and internalized a lot of the book for myself. It's true. Right. Well, this is not the first book you've read. And uh, no, neither not. was... A Christian mind and uh, right, true. so a lot of a lot of your verbiage though and a lot of the way you live comes from all of the literature that you've you've studied and uh, when he says he who marries the spirit of the age soon finds himself a widower like me I'm just coming across that you know right and so the first thing I hear spirit of the age and my, I'm gonna go with my thoughts go oh well ooh, oh that's where where Tom learns that and then my next thought is like oh Okay, well, what does that mean? And you were there years ago when when you read this book, right? But you now you're able to speak clearly. Though I'm going to make the argument, you're speaking past people with that because even me, you're speaking past me, and I have actually tried to like, okay, let me go along and like try to catch Tom where he is in literary understanding. Yeah, right. But if you don't try, you're not going to get there anyway. And I think this, we're, we're predestined. We know that from the Bible, right? I, I, I know of two times at least where it says it explicitly. Also, we're chosen from the foundations of the earth. We, we know that as well. And then when the church was first being formed in Acts, the Lord added to the church daily as many as would be saved. So the Lord is the one that adds to the church. So <clears throat> though I think this book will be, and I'm not all the way through it, but from what I can tell so far, I think it will be a great instruction manual as to uh, show us where we're erring maybe um, as Christians, and that's each individual person, not as, you know, we're, we're going to sit here and say, well, this is what Schlossberg said, so you need to clean that part of your life up. No, no, no. That's your relationship with God. Uh, but what, all I'm saying is I don't think even if you read this book and you try to clean up, because you are not, you cannot work your way to heaven. Even if you try to clean up your life to, to whatever the standards of this book are or the Bible are, I, I don't think you can work your way there. And so... I don't know. We we talked about this a little bit before the podcast, where it was like, I was asking you, like, okay, well, if you if if you sit down in a coffee shop and you bring this up to the average person, and they're not going to understand what you're saying, and you're like, all right, well, you brought up that that's not where the argument is. The argument is in the academic community. I don't know who this gets through to unless God wants it to get through to them. To be honest with you. I don't. I don't think it's a bad idea to point out to people as much as you possibly can, like, hey, this may be somewhere where you're erring. As a matter of fact, I think we're we're supposed to do that. But I wonder with stories like Noah and like, you know, that that definitely was a calling from God for sure. And like who listened to him? Like nobody. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean I think <laughs> that they I think you can you can speak about things to a wide variety of people. Yeah, I mean, I do. I think that you're probably not in the same way, but I, I do think that. Yeah, I do think that um, you speak to a wide variety of people about it. Sure. I mean, he's this guy. He's been been gone for four years, 
And uh, I mean, we were we were joking. He had uh, three kids. Two of them were Tom and Steve. That's right. He did. I- ironically, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> so we were right, kind of joking. Like here, here he is. You know what? I don't even know. Close to a hundred years later, and he's still teaching people named Tom and Steve. Uh, <laughs> that's know, right. Right the, there you go. There's there's a legacy right there. Right there you go. Tom and Steve. But I, I, this is this book is so deep. That Smart this guy, is, right? Oh man. <laughs> yeah. You, you want to aspire to uh, be a theologian? Here you go. Try try to match this level. Well, I just think it's uh, a lot of it is, uh, you know, um, calling out uh, unspoken assumptions here. You know, the um, yeah. So we're gonna go the uh, so uh, we're gonna go. Uh, we're gonna start off here, and he says uh, right in the introduction, he says men may risk everything, mm-hmm. including their lives, for family, for wealth, for country, for class, or for the kingdom of God. Even the cynic who believes he is above all that nonsense has established a hierarchy of values. Otherwise, he could identify. You could not. You could. You could not identify those values as nonsense. Right? He points out obvious statements like that. Yeah, no, <laughs> like I know. You you wouldn't put to words ordinarily. You know, and the whole book is that way. I mean, I think you start from the first page and then you get to the last page, and every single page is like an idea, and it's always the same thing. The first step is you read it. The second step is you is you acknowledge that it's a simple, straightforward thing. The third step is you realize you've never actually applied it in your own life. Yeah. And then the fourth step is you start overthink you start thinking, or in my case, overthinking, about how you're gonna about how you're going to apply it to your everyday life because it's the truth, right? Yeah. It, you know, it's really true. You know, it says, uh, you know, the cynic, right? Let's let's not worry about the man of God, right? Let's just worry about the cynic here, okay. the cynic who believes that they're above all that nonsense, right? I mean, you could be talking about anybody from Nietzsche to your next door neighbor, right? Na- name it, right? I mean, name it, anybody, yep. right? Well, hey, you know, you knock on a door, you know, hey, I'm here to talk to you about the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Well, someone says, I'm above all that nonsense. I'm all set. I'm all set. That's right? the New England response, exactly, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm all set, you know, right? No, no, I'm not selling insurance. I want to talk to you about your soul, you know. <laughs> No, I'm all they're set. They're all set with right? that, too. Yeah, they're all know. set with that, too, by the way, right? So, but this is it. The cynic who believes that they're all on that, right? Like, when you look at a person that way, you're not, you can say, well, you know, you don't let, you say, they're, I'm all set, right? That human being has a hierarchy of values. They just right? don't know it. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. What separates the chasm between guy A and guy B is that guy A realizes that he himself and every single person around him has a hierarchy of values and thinks about it and and right in in quantifiable terms. The mm-hmm. other guy is just not thinking about it at all and is just trying to get through the day, you That's know. only recently been pointed out to me that both views whether religious or Christian, whatever, mm-hmm. okay, or the evolution view, both of them take faith. Yeah, that's right. Both views end in faith. Yeah, and that's why we're not going to try to to dive in this book and cover massive sections of it in one fell swoop. It's just it's too much. Like this is, it's exactly right. There's so much, it's faith, it's belief, right? And and he talks about this uh, uh, a little bit later, mm-hmm. but he, he it's all, it's belief. So when someone says, well, I don't believe in all that nonsense, well, guess what, buddy? Let me sit you down and tell you what you do believe. And, what do you believe in? Yeah, exactly. Prove it. What do you believe in? Because <laughs> a lot of the things that we believe in on the course of a day-to-day basis, that we don't got no proof for. Right. Right? Yeah, exactly. Even, you know? even... Even religious people or Christians that don't, right? That we we don't question history. Even us, 
Even us. Yeah, right? Even us. Have I ever met George Washington? Uh, well, yeah, no. right. No? But no. How, how do I verify that? The exact same way that I verify Christ? Yes. The same exact way? Same exact way. Through literary works mm-hmm. yep. in antiquity? Right, yep. You that's know? true, yep, yep. And faith. Yeah, right. That, you know? That's correct. Yep, yep. And like, uh, for example, uh, yeah, like you could say, like, do people in uh, do people in um, in Uzbekistan think the sky is blue? You know, I mean, I don't know. I've never met anybody from Uzbekistan. You know, but you can say that's common knowledge. So I take it on faith that it's common knowledge that people in Uzbekistan think the sky is blue. But the truth is, is that. It's also common knowledge that people have a hole in their hearts and they have a spiritual yearning and people, all people have spiritual yearning and that as all people grow and develop, they cry out for, uh, they cry out Abba Father for something that is bigger and beyond themselves. And so, but yet one is supposed to be common knowledge, stupid. And the other is, the other is no, is you're stupid because it's idiotic. Right. So, but no, actually, the two are based on the same exact actions based upon a presupposition. Right. Yep. So, you know, they're really not that different from one another. But no, nobody ever points that out. Like I said, I mean, I'm 38 years old. It was only like two weeks ago that somebody pointed out to me, like, hey, you realize uh, both of those take faith? Yeah. And right. I was like, wait a minute. Let me think about this. Exactly. Oh, you're and, right. <laughs> and so, you know, Slossberg talks anyone with a hierarchy of values which is all people, right, right. Yep. has played. Because, see, if you don't have a hierarchy of values, then you would not be able to... So if you say, well, values are stupid, there's, how do you know that values are stupid? You'd you have must, to have values. You would have to have one in order to know that the other ones are stupid. That's right. So, you know, anyone with a hierarchy of values has placed something at its apex. And whatever that thing is, that is the God that you serve. That's right. Yep. You got it. Yeah, and the thing is, I have actually said that to people, just not in that smart of a language. Yeah, right. I said everybody is betting eternity on something. Yep, they, they really are. They really are. And everybody everybody is using, it's really about the use of it, really. Like everybody, like, you know, everybody, we, you, we, we call out to God because we are in need of salvation. We're in need of a savior. We need to overcome the sin problem, which is the, ga- the, the, which is the, the chasm between God and man. Yeah. You know, so we are looking for that bridge. We're looking for that way to reconcile eternity. And people do this all the time. And they'll do it different ways throughout their life, right? Like maybe... George Carlin, he prays to Joe Pesci. I'm dead serious. <laughs> oh, okay, right. <laughs> that's what he said in one of his that, That's what he specials. said in one of his comedy specials, I'm yeah. Just, I'm just saying. <laughs> right, yeah. No, but people will that's do this. That's how different it gets. Yeah, no, that's how different it can be. And people will do it all throughout their lives. Um, maybe when you're a teenager, maybe it's like a teenage crush. And, you know, you think like your crush, oh, this person is going to be the perfect person for me, whatever. Or maybe it's, uh, maybe, you know, it's like if you're early, maybe it's like, uh, you know, maybe it's drinking or sex or uh, maybe it's, uh, could be your work. You know, it could, could be, be anything. Uh, could be anything. You know, it could be anything. And with um, the distractions these days, it, the options are infinite. Yeah, no, and that's true. That's very true. And to be honest with you, it's actually, the distra- that's, that's one part of the narrative that actually is a little bit, it's, it's really interesting to talk about and, and almost a little bit scary because we, living in an age of distraction, I don't really account that for myself and I don't really account it for you, but I think that the young people and you get some of the young people that are being raised, they are distracted on a level 
that uh, on a severe a level of severity from such a young age that we can't understand. Yeah, and that we can't. They are now involved in something that we cannot understand. So for Schlossberg, he's looking at a world where people are replacing that apex position. They're taking God out of that position and they're putting in something else. Right. Well, I think a lot of times it's a little scary. Young people are not even there. They're 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 they are just distracted from the moment they get up to the moment that they go to bed, if they even do. I mean, and that's not to say, by the way, that I'm not distracted. Yeah. I mean, even there's a nine year gap between you and me. Yeah. Okay. And it's it's bad. It's almost like you know, how, like you buy a computer and six months later, it's like, well, the i27 chip has come out and yep. you're you're you know five steps behind. You're like, great, you got it. You know. Yep. Well, it's the, it's the same way. I mean that that gap just between you and me, mm-hmm. I can tell. Yeah. Is is massive. Oh, it's massive. So that's why we know, like, there's no way. You well, know? you know, it's like even the other day, you and I were talking about video games the other day, and you know, it's like we we have, <laughs> you know, we have enough knowledge, shared knowledge between us that we can actually share experiences and have some really great conversations, and we can speak to each other as two people that know what we're talking about. Right. But you know, hey, once we get down to the nitty gritty, right? I mean, you know, I'm I'm over here asking you, you know, I'm over here asking you what what an Xbox One is called, and you start talking about the latest and greatest. You shine my knuckles up real quick. You you're not holding a candle to me. <laughs> no, no, right, exactly, right. So. Th- there is that that gap. You definitely can see it and feel it. And then the young people are in a gap even beyond you, right? Yeah. So it's really incredible. Oh yeah. No, my my kids smoke me at video games. Man, it's terrible. It's unbelievable. I thought I was good till I had kids and they learned how to use their thumbs. Done. Done. <laughs> done. Forget it. That's right. Don't forget it. That's right. You got I it. I suddenly had a lot more sympathy for helping my grandmother with her cell phone. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, it's. I don't even try anymore. To be honest, I I sit on the couch. I sit on the couch. I don't even try. And so the kids will want to play video games and they do some other stuff. And right. maybe, maybe we're streaming. Maybe. I'm not sure. Right. And I sit down on the couch, so I maybe want to turn on the TV. I will give it one try. One try. And it's not a very big one either. So it's half, <laughs> it's half-hearted. It's, it's half-hearted try, right? <laughs> so usually it involves picking up the remote control and usually pointing it in you know, like in general to, direction. Yeah, I usually try to push air. You know, like I usually push air towards the TV using the remote. <laughs> And I figure you wave it at it yeah, like it's a I, wand. I do. I kind of like doing the Harry Potter thing where I'm kind of like waving it <laughs> off, and I maybe give a couple grunts as like my like a, I don't know, like a know, some sort of a magic spell, and then I hope it turns on. If it doesn't turn on, then that's the one time's over. Somebody I, fix this, I go, kids. I go, hey kids, somebody go over here, you know, right? And I go, and I got my uh, I got my my seven year old, my eight year old, I got my you know my eight year old. Hey, I'm gonna come over. Okay, can you get turn on the TV for daddy? My eight year old go, no problem, daddy. You just sit right there. I got it. It, it used to be get me the remote. Now it's, no, it's right. now it's turn both. On, turn on that TV, hey, sweetheart. Do you know how to turn this thing on? You know, oh yeah, sure, Daddy, I can do that for you. And then they hit buttons, you know, and they're hitting the buttons. And I don't know what buttons are hitting. They hit the, the buttons. I go, man, how can we got buttons for the TV? Like, I, like that's the thing. It's like, when did I ever say that we needed like five buttons to turn on the TV? Right. Like, <laughs> there's a there's a cheat code you got to put in. Yeah, exactly. Right. So. <laughs> I guess so. I don't yeah, know. So that's... you definitely do have that uh, generational gap for sure. Well, the, yeah. The, to get back to the distractions that yeah. uh, the generation has today, they don't realize something. This very very simple concept: God does not want to be not only on a shelf below anything in your life. He doesn't want to be on the same shelf as anything in your life. It can't be fifty fifty. Right. It better be fifty point one and forty nine point nine. Yeah. Because anything else, anything short of that, is lukewarm or idle. The uh, yeah, anything, Bible truth. Anything that is on uh, the the apex, like he says there, yes, and that is an idol. That's you know the where top. God should be. 
Uh, and so many times we put ourselves on there sometimes. Uh, but there are many different things that we do. Yeah. Uh, in many different areas of our life. That's that's a that's a good point. Is actually I was thinking about that the other night during study. That you know that's how we make ourselves to be God without even realizing it. Yeah. Is just sometimes it's just relying on our own understanding. Yeah, sometimes that's true. Yeah, you know that's, yeah, that's we do. That's against Proverbs three, five, and six right there. Yeah, yeah. You know. Yep. It, like I said, it doesn't have to rise to that whole golden calf level. Mm-hmm. No, no, it really doesn't. And, and we don't really have a lot. You know, these days your idols are not going to be golden calves. That's right. Your, your idols are going to be your thoughts, and also like Charlesburg is going to talk about your yes. presuppositions. Yes. You know, those are going to be your idols. That's right. You know, your presuppositions, right? Yep. So, exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, you can you can speak to that a lot, <laughs> a lot better than I can, on, like you can on a lot of issues, but yeah. Well, you know, he talks about here, this is what you were talking about before. He says, legions of ordinary people know how to use such ideas as an inferiority complex, mm-hmm. right? You know, uh, relativity and pragmatism, right? Don't people know how to use pragmatism? Yeah, I literally couldn't even... If I tried to define those to you right now, like yeah. it would take me a minute, but I guarantee you I can put each one of them into practice. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Even though you don't have the words to describe exactly what it is, you if I asked you, who's the most pragmatic person you know, you could tell me in a minute. No problem. I, honestly, at this point, I would need a definition of pragmatic. That's how bad it is. Oh, wow. Is that, I've been out of college that long. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Is, well, that, is that like a person that goes like step by step? Yeah, with, like with step by step, but also too, you know, just getting stuff done, you know? Like, you know, my wife and I, like my wife is a doer. I'm more a thinker. Like the prioritization of whatnot, you know? Yeah, a pragmatism, things that work. You know, like for example, if if you're going to, um, if I wanted to knock a hole in the uh, in the wall over here, the most pragmatic way to do it would be to sledgehammer and swing. Just just get at it. Yeah. Now, would you want me to do that? Probably not. You'd want me to use more. Like you'd want me to maybe use a saw or maybe you know get blueprints and maybe measure. Before For now, I leave it. it alone. But yeah, keyhole saw is usually best. Yeah, usually. Rock. Yeah, yeah, usually. <laughs> but that's not the most pragmatic way. The most pragmatic way to put a hole in the wall is to get a hammer and just start swinging. Yeah. See, right? like, okay, I had a you good know, idea. What like, it is, like, but, if I wanted yeah. to have a kid, I could try to find a nice girl and fall in love and try to convince her that I can do stuff for her and then I can get married and then we can have kids. But that's not pragmatic. What's a pragmatic way to have kids would be rape. You know, right? Oh, and kidnapping, right? That would be pragmatic. So, you know, sometimes we want, sometimes we say, well, someone, so-and-so is a very pragmatic person. Well, that can be a good thing, but pragmatism isn't always a good thing. You know, so basically when I say pragmatism, what we mean is, uh, you ever heard that old uh, expression, um, a means to an end, you know? Yeah. Like, right? Like, you know, at the, uh, uh, you know, so it's basically saying that, you know, whatever we need to do to get something done is the best way. And, and that's not always true. So, yeah, these are things that sometimes wouldn't fall under, you know, what Paul said, all things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes we wouldn't even fall into that. <laughs> right, 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 yeah. So I think a lot of times we, we, we praise people who are pragmatic. If you go into an office and you say, hey, uh, who's that guy over there in the office? And someone says, oh, you know, that's, uh, that's John, and John is a very pragmatic individual. So make sure that, so, he, so make sure when you're thinking about who you want to be, you want to be like John because John's very pragmatic, right? Now, that might be a good thing in the business environment, or it might be a good thing in the sense that that John applies pragmatism to his job, but the whole concept of a person being pragmatic is not necessarily a good thing. And I, I we, have it. <laughs> we as a society, right we as a society 
just say, well, of course, pragmatism is the best way. You know, like that would be a that would be a good way. In in a general sense, yeah, yeah, you um, know? because that's the stuff that gets glorified as success at any cost these days. Yeah, exactly. It's funny you say, John. I, I'm pretty sure when I worked, I was selling cars for about nine seconds, and uh, huh. I think our lead salesman's name was John. Is that right? Yeah. And they're like, you know, he sells twelve cars a month. You know, you want to be like John. Yeah. yeah John lies through his teeth. There you go. Right. <laughs> no, but that's exactly it. Right. But then, does it matter that John lies through his teeth? Nope, don't matter a bit. What not matters is that he gets 12 cars a month, not, and that's pragmatic. Not to the secular right? world. Right, that's pragmatic. Right. Same thing with an inferiority complex, you know? Like, for example, um, you know, you can say, uh, uh, you can use an inferiority comp. You can accentuate that with another person to make yourself look better, right? And don't we do that all the time? I mean, don't we find little ways that we can, little things that we can say that will, you know, uh, uh, that will bring another person down, you know? Uh, they even have terms for it. They call it negging in uh, in uh, the in, in the romantic relationships now. You know. Oh, is that a new term? I think so. I uh, can't keep up with them. You know, it's well, like no, technology. Have, yeah, no, and I know, and so it might already be out of style. I don't, I don't know whether it is or not. <laughs> well, but, I don't, I haven't, I don't know which side of the trend I'm on there. <laughs> yeah, but uh, anyhow, they'll have if people use an inferiority complex to place themselves at a higher position socially than another person. Or they might use the inferiority complex to try to fix their own problems rather than to go to, uh, rather than go look at what God has, the morality, yeah. Yeah. to look at God's way, right? And, you know, he says here, he says, everyone, you know, he says, okay, so everyone's heard about inferiority complexes, relative, uh, relativity, pragma- pragmatism, mm-hmm. but very few have actually read a page of Freud, Einstein, or Dewey, you know? Right. So, you know, for example, um, you know, I remember... Uh, so I, this is a long time ago. I knew a guy, and he was a uh, he was a teacher. And um, one day he called me, and uh, he called me one day, and he, and so he said, yeah. And so yeah, uh, he said, hey, I, I'm not I'm not I'm not working at the school anymore. I'm not a teacher anymore. And he was selling something, so he wanted to know if he'd come over to the house and he could sell it. And I, this is a long time ago. I don't remember. This is maybe twenty years ago, maybe maybe longer. Maybe it was like twenty five years ago, but. Um, he a uh, nice guy, but he came over and he was trying to sell me something that was by Thomas Dewey, right? And so uh, he went over and he was he was like, "Hey, how much about Dewey do you know?" And I was like, "Oh, not too much." So he told me all about it, and and then I remember just the most glowing terms, the most glowing things, and he said this all this stuff was great, you know. And so he's um he's going on and on, and and by the time he's done, I'm thinking, "Wow, it's Thomas Dewey sounds like a great guy," you know. This is a wonderful <laughs> thing. Yeah, and so I was. Yeah, I was thinking it was a great guy. And so, anyways, after he left, and I had to make a decision on whether I was going to buy the thing or not. Yeah, uh, I said, well, before I buy it, I ought to, you know, do my own research on Thomas Dewey. So I was doing my own research, and you know, it turns out, you know, the guy's a monster. You know, I mean, right? I mean, this guy is, uh, you know, the, uh, an enemy of God. You know, and, and and nothing I would be interested in at all. And so, uh, you know, to to be able to do that, and so it's very interesting how. The way that we think and view the world allows us to look at a guy like Dewey because he did a lot for public education. And so we say, okay, well, public education is a, is a triumph of state organization to bring the national education level up higher. We have a school here in Concord named after him. So, right? So, mm-hmm. the, um, so uh, you know, and so we can look at a person like that and say, this is a great person. Yeah. And the reason why we say that Thomas Dewey is a great person has everything to do with the state, 
secular education. It has to do with national uh, national uh, adherence to secular ideals, uh, and it has to do with the uh, the the implication of philosophical thought within a person's life. And so, uh, what we want, but if you go to the Bible and you look at what God has for people, okay, you look at the role of religious instruction in people's lives, right? All right? You look at the the institutions of the local of the local autonomous church, right? Of the local church, um, and the church community. Uh, you'll see, uh, uh, for example, moral education, right? So you can actually break it down where you can say. You know, I can sit down and I'm perfectly capable of having this conversation about Thomas Dewey where we're all agreeing that this is wonderful stuff and he's a good guy, did wonderful things. And it's not until I get alone in a room and I start confronting my own unspoken assumptions that I'm able to see Dewey for who and what he really is. Right. And so that was, uh, that was a situation I can look back on and say, you know, when I read this in the book and I say, wow, yeah, Dewey, he's right. You know, he's absolutely right. I've internalized Dewey in a way that my heart is anti-Dewey, but my outward expression of the way I act is is the opposite. It is pro-Dewey. So what we need to do as believers is we need to try to realign what we know in our hearts to what we are acting upon out in the real world. You know, and it... it, it, it one of the things I love about the book is, for example, uh, he talks about, uh, uh, you know, John Maynard Keynes. You know, uh, half the people that Schlossberg quotes are actually, like, really terrible people, but they say really smart things, and he's not afraid to put the quote in there if it really shows what he's trying to prove, and it's really great. So I'm no big fan of John Maynard Keynes, but this is a great quote, actually, you know, because Keynes was, uh, is an economist, and he was, uh, he was the one that used to talk about the, the spirit animals. Have I talked about that before? I <clears throat> uh, I don't rec- I don't recall. I know I see I know the guy's name. I've heard of Dewey as well. Yeah. And you know what? It, it's what just happened, but in reverse, uh, with you and your friend selling that book. Yeah. Uh, just happened to me. Like I trust you because you're a brother in Christ. Right. So of like what you just said about Dewey. Yeah. But really, just an assumption. Because I don't know. Yeah, because you don't know, right? Uh, true enough, right? Yeah. I don't know. Sure. Sure. Yeah, no, yeah that's true. That's but no, I've, I've heard of Keynes, but I don't know much about him. Yeah, so um, so John Maynard Keynes was... Uh, was uh, uh, was uh, Yeah, so he was an, uh, an economist. Uh, he was a lot of things. Uh, it's interesting. And I always, I don't know, he's always a, he's a hero of the left. Like, they say he was gay, but I don't know if he was gay or not. Uh, but uh, it's always like the thing. You ever notice that? Like every time someone becomes like a hero of the left, they have to be gay. You know, like you always hear it. Like, you know, Keynes was, uh, he was alive at the turn of the century. Like, how do people know? You know, and they're like, what do they do? Like, go back and like, you know, like, I, like, I don't know. What do they go back to the dude's house and he's got it written on the, written on the, the kitchen walls? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> Some of the Crayola stuff. Like, yeah, there. I don't know. They go and he's got it written in Crayola behind the, behind the evening chair, you know, like, oh, uh, P.S. I was gay. Like, how does that even work? They could just, because they could just lie about it if they wanted to. Who's, I guess. I don't checking? know. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. But it's a great, um, it's a great story. On the left. It's a great story, actually. Keynes and Hayek, and Hayek, or uh, uh, and I, I think this is true. So much I should write it. Maybe we should write it. We should write the screenplay. So yeah. during World War II, right? Keynes and Hayek, they both were volunteers. And I guess, like, I, if you know more about this, it'd be fascinating to dive into. So I guess they ended up on the same duty, like that was on the roof, because they used to go up on the roofs and they used to uh, watch out for the um, uh, for the uh, the planes that were coming in. Okay. 
And so they would watch out for the planes coming in so that they could uh, they could signal if there was the the, 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 the the planes. Yeah, there used to be that here in, I believe, up in... Yeah, yeah, that's true, yeah. Next town over so there. there was a... I guess they, they go back, and there was actually a shift where John Maynard Keynes and Hayek, who were two economists, they were two, uh, they were two well-respected economists, they disagreed with each other fundamentally. And they spent an entire evening, like a, a night shift. They had an entire evening where they're on a roof together. And they were their job was to look out for the, the planes. But it was just the two of them on the roof. And no one knows what they talked about. Like, that would be fascinating, right? Like, eight hours with those two, like, on a roof, like, with nothing but their own thoughts, just going back and forth well, with each other. having pulled guard shifts myself, that could be, that's going to go one or two ways. <laughs> it is, yeah? Yep. <laughs> the stuff that you talk about on guard shift, man. It, you, you're you so bored, you'd have, it's, and you've talked about everything else, so. Right, sure. You can just imagine the topics you get on. Right. Who's who's hotter, Jessica Biel or like Sarah Jessica Parker? No, it's true, I don't know. Man. No, no, it's true, man. It could be anything from that to some philosophical discussion that you and I would never understand. Man, no, it's true, man. You know, I was actually, uh, you know, it's funny because uh, yeah, I was on Twitter earlier today, and uh, there's an anon on Twitter uh, called the Fisher King, and uh, he's a uh, he's a pretty he's an academic, and he's a uh, he's a real smart guy. You know, I don't know what part of academia he he's in, but he's um. His uh, his academic background, he he's got to protect it, so he he goes anon, you know. Uh, but he's a real smart guy, and uh, just really fascinating uh, to read him sometimes. And he was talking about when he was younger, how like he he had this job as a janitor, you know, when he was like a teenager, and then he's talking like about how, like when you're working with that crowd, right? Because like the janitor, I mean, he's got probably got like an IQ, you know, it's probably like maxes out the IQ at like around eighty, you know, it's probably like 60, 70, 80, you know. Here goes our janitor audience. And uh, well, no, 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 but I, no, no, no. <laughs> No, 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 not at all, not at all. Listen, I love janitors, all right? You know, like Trump Tower has the best janitors, right? <laughs> Get out of here with No, that. I know that's it, man, right? Well, it works for Trump, so it's got to work for us, right? No, listen. No, 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 it is. Hey, listen. Right, no, there goes no. the reserve parachute. No, 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 no. It's not <laughs> It's not like that at all. So the um but he's talking about how like his um the people that he's working with, right? The janitors, how like they, they they basically would pass the time and they'd be talking to him about things like, and, and it was actually a really great tweet because he's saying like, this is where guys get that stuff, you know, like, right? Like, cause um, he would try to pass the time by talking about things like, like incest, you know, be like, oh, let me tell you about, uh, you know, like uh, this family, uh, like this was like an incest relationship or, or like talking about like, uh, for example, people that like, you know, and all these different things, like you were saying, like who's hotter, you know, or like who, who or, like what would happen if you took this and you crossed like a frog with a you know what would happen if you crossed a frog with a beaver or what would happen if you injected like a, a nuclear bomb into a hurricane or something like that you know yep. right yep. like like these things and so he the whole twitter feed was about like hey you know people wonder where guys get this stuff like listen and not only is it useful but it's essential and so for fisher king to kind of come out it's kind of it's kind of cute to see like these high these high-minded academics actually say you know like when you get down to it, it really comes down to you, you know, men do what they got to do, and when we're doing what we got to do, we, this is how this is what we talk about, and it's a good thing, right? <laughs> it, it happens. I don't care what level you're at. You're it not does. gonna lie to me and say you haven't had weird thoughts like that. Yeah, you have. Yeah, you have. Yeah, we all You've have had weird conversations. Yep, we just, all have. Just admit it. <laughs> it is what it is. It's true. It's true. Yep. Yep. We've all had them. 
Yeah, we've we're all, all, we're all just them. men trying to survive. <laughs> yep, no, it's true. We all are. And uh, anyways, John Maynard Keynes was a man trying to survive, and uh, he had this great quote. So basically what he says here, he says, Mad men in authority who hear voices in the air are distilling their frenzy from some academic scribbler of a few years back. You know, this is such a great quote. So Keynes was a uh, uh, an economist, and he, he basically believed that people could manipulate the market. You could basically get outside of, like, supply and demand, and then you could manipulate the market. And one of the things that he liked to point out was, these things called animal spirits you know basically that if everybody in the whole wide world believes that things are getting better then things are getting better right and it doesn't really matter if things are getting better or not like if everybody thinks they're getting better then you're pretty much going to be able to act like that's true or if everybody thinks that the sky is falling then the stock market's going to crash right like if everybody thinks that the world like this is one of those things so in the stock market if you think that the world is terrible and everybody thinks that the stock market's going to crash it doesn't matter how strong the fundamentals are Right. The market's going to crash. That's right. And so John Maynard Keynes would always talk about, uh, you know, because he was a high society guy, you know. Uh, and so he would uh, he would always talk about, he would say, mad men in authority, right? So he, he would paint this picture of these these elites, right? Like the cause, And he considered himself one, but he would, like these elites would sit around and go, oh, uh, hey, Steve, have you read this new great book, this new academic book? It says that the sky is falling, and it says that uh, the world is going to all, we're all going to die if this doesn't happen. And then, you know, then the guy goes on the news, and he, t- he says it to his friends, and he says it to everybody else, and pretty soon everybody's talking about what this academic wrote in the book. And then all of a sudden everybody's believing this narrative and so Maynard Keynes would basically say these narratives cause the market to go up or down and it's based on narrative it's not based on any actual facts so you know basically Maynard Keynes what he's saying here is he's saying that if you think that you live in reality right well the reality that you think you live in isn't really reality okay you get up in a world and what has happened is some guy who has a lot more power than he's got brains is reading books written by people who have a lot more brains than they do power. And everyone's just cackling like hens and it's creating this world full of things which you call reality, but it's not reality, right? Like our reality, what we talk about and what we react to and what our feelings and what our thoughts are dictated by and the feelings that come out through our thoughts and the actions that come out of our feelings Right. These are all just based on the rantings of people who are like, hey, did you read the latest and greatest book? Right. And then it's just all ranting and reading. Or it's been dumbed down to its lowest common form, like like a fraction. Right. Uh, And it's called Fox or CNN. Yeah, it can be. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Or, you know, for example, um, you know, somebody somebody can write a uh, somebody can say, oh, well, somebody can uh Write a book on being mindful, mindfulness, and then somebody can scam you and say, "Oh, for nine ninety nine, you can get my uh, my three day program to make you more mindful." You know, and then uh, the person's going to try to scam you, and then all of a sudden you're buying these things, and what you're doing is you are subjecting yourself to feelings, thoughts, emotions, and actions that honestly aren't coming from a place of keenly, thoughtfully. Worked nope. out assumptions. Nope. It's just rantings and ravings of some guy with way too much power yep. and way too much money. 
Yeah, like I think Don Lepre was an early student of Keynes. <laughs> it's a probably. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I don't know. I tell you, Keynes was just an observer of it, man. I, why does he saw it have, everywhere? Man, why did he have to point that out to people? Because thank you, insider trading and everything yeah, right. else you've now spawned. Pretty much, yeah. No, absolutely, absolutely. Somebody would have figured it out eventually, but. Yep, yep. No, he, sorry. He had to go point it out. Well, you know, it just it creates a lot of it creates a lot of assumptions because for example, like you wouldn't pay the 999 if you didn't assume that mindfulness was going to make your life better. And you wouldn't assume that mindfulness made your life better unless somebody who you thought was a smart person had said that it was a good thing. You know, it says that, so it's always about the assumptions. And this is where Schlossberg, I think, hits the nail on the head. It's always the assumption that you have to question. Like, you don't, you don't, like, for me, even as a teacher, right? So, for me as a teacher, and I think it's no secret, right? Like, I teach English uh, when I'm not podcasting. And so, the even with my students, always with the assumption. I always say, why do you feel that way? Like, what do you think about this? Well, why do you feel that way? And people always get stunted because... Nobody thinks about the assumptions that they hold within themselves. Nobody goes backwards. And you know what? You pointed that out to me, and it took me a long time to understand what the heck you were saying. Yeah. And it's a very short sentence you're saying to me. Mm-hmm. No, no complicated words I need to look up. Yeah. But to actually understand the concept of doing that, I didn't even get it. I wasn't practicing it. But that is so key. Boy, it really is. No, it is. And the assumptions, you have to go right down to the assumption. And then you have to, it really, it, uh, I think for me, I used to say this back in the past, like when I was younger, I used to say, I used to say, force people to defend their position. And, and I think that was probably a bit too militant and it's kind of simplistic. I like it. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> I'm <laughs> right. sort of militant, yeah, but yeah, I like it. Right. You like it. Yeah, no, I did too for a really long time. <laughs> uh, but I said that phrase so much that I almost kind of lost sense of what I was really trying to say by yeah. it, right? You know, like, and so, uh, yeah, it is good. You, you, you have to force people to defend their position. And so you kind of have to get to that point where you're seeing their assumption. Now, sometimes people won't give up on their assumptions, right? But at least then I think you're having an honest conversation with people. Yep. Right. Exactly. I mean, at least then you're at least talking to somebody in an honest way, you know, like somebody can say, well, you know, um, they're either honest or committed to their lies. Yeah, exactly. You know what? No. <laughs> Perfect. I agree. I think that's a really great way to say it. What are the two? Yeah, no, it's really true. They're either, you know, yeah, there you go. They're either honest or they're committed 100%. Yeah. You know? And it's possible to do that. I mean, we have faith, right? Hebrews 11.1, 1, right? I mean, yep. you know, right. so Hebrews 11.1, 1, we are committed. We cling to Christ out of faith. And mm-hmm. so uh, it's not it's not, it's not, not one thing to to, to say that other people are equally as committed. But once you get down to the level of assumption, you can at least challenge people at a level which is fundamental. Yeah, I, th- I think the, uh, maybe that other phrase, you know, forcing them to defend. I, force, maybe it, over time, I guess it sounds like a bad word or whatever. Or yeah. It sounds like hostile. But how but, do you but, do it? But, See, but, the thing is, is that how do you force not... someone to defend your position? Well, you don't, you know, you don't put a knife to their throat, and you don't put your right. you don't put your jack boot on their throat, and no. then you say you have to defend your position. No, you, no. you have to find out what the assumption is, and then point it out to them. Yeah, it's actually it, it's not a, it's not a mean thing to do. It it sure. gets them thinking. Yeah, it does get them thinking. You right. Know? Yeah. Well, it's, it's not really a mean statement. I don't think. I that's why I like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I no, think, it's good. I like getting people thinking. That's that's a. 
I like the easy statements, the the, the lower hanging fruit. It's easier for there, me to there get. There you go. There you go. Well, <laughs> you one know? of the things that you said earlier, you were talking about this quote. It's actually a quote by uh, W. R. Einge. Uh, or Inge, yeah. I-N-G-E. Your guess is good as mine. Yeah, I'm not really sure who that is, but I'll have to do some research, find out. He who marries the spirit of the age soon finds himself a widower, and uh, that is a um, that's a great quote. Uh, mm-hmm. And you know, there are whole books written uh, about uh, relevance, and, and this is one of those uh, areas where you can go back. Okay, so for example, that quote is talking about the struggle of relevance. Okay, Oz Guinness has written an entire book about that subject. Okay, like an entire book. All right, it's about two hundred and fifty pages, maybe, maybe it's a little less, maybe it's like two hundred and thirty. So, yeah, it's like an hour to read for you. I mean, well, pro- I mean, well, I, <laughs> I don't I, even know who Oz Guinness is. So. Oh, okay, all right. So, well, he is a great, well, a great author. So, uh, uh, we'll have to do some one of his. You know what? We will. I think we're probably going to do. Uh, we're going to do Dust of Death here. So, probably not one of his more modern books. Those ones are. But anyways, they're good. They're good books. <laughs> is, but. is this man alive? That's all I want to know. No, he is. He's doing a. Um, I saw him recently. He was doing. Uh, he was with Jordan Peterson. Man, they're doing. Oh, uh, cool! It's super cool, man. All right. Like I was doing a. Um, cause uh, Prager, Prager is doing. Uh, they're bringing in Jordan Peterson with Prager, and yep. they're going through some of the Old Testament books. Okay. And they did Genesis, and I don't know if it's any good, but I've heard it's really good, but I haven't really seen it. But now they're doing Exodus, right? And so what they do is they have this. Um, they have this whole like uh, it's like a council, and so they have Jordan Peterson's there and Prager's there, and they got some Jews there, and they got some secular people there, and they got some Christians there, right? Okay. And so and so and they're all talking about Exodus, right? Yeah. And so, anyways, they um uh, I was watching a clip that they had, uh, and I because I was curious who the Christians were, yeah, and. That Oz Guinness was there, man, and that Oz Guinness there, and I was like, and Oz Guinness was like getting up, and he was talking to Peterson, and Peterson's talking, and all of a sudden Guinness is there, and then he starts going after Peterson, and they're having this big conversation and this big discussion. It was great, man. It was awesome. I was like, go huh. Oz, man, go Oz Guinness, man. I've never heard of him. Apparently, he's never heard of him. No. Oh no, he's great, man. So Oz Guinness is so. So obviously, right? So I'll answer the first question. So the, you're, the first, what you're thinking right now, but you're afraid to ask, is you're thinking like, is he related to the beer guy? You know, and the answer actually, <laughs> and it's not a bad question to ask, because the answer is yes, of course he is. Guinness is disgusting. <laughs> so, but anyhow, so the the uh, so the disgusting beer Guinness was that was his grandfather. So uh, Oz Guinness's grandfather was a uh, uh, was the one who created that beer. Okay. And uh, and his parents were missionaries. His parents were missionaries to China. Oh wow! Yeah, so he was born there. He was actually born there, um, and uh, he was. Uh, uh, they moved back. They moved out of China uh, when he was very young, but um, which is always great. Uh, but he has a very great heart for the Chinese people. But he was born in China, and then he was. Uh, 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 they moved out of there when he was young, but he has uh, grown up, and he's become kind of a. a uh, he's a writer, a Christian kind of intellectual, I would say. I would uh, say he went to Oxford. So yeah. Uh, yeah, Oz Guinness. Yeah, yeah. No, he, he ended up going to Oxford, probably with the family money. But you know, I mean, you go to Oxford and you learn a lot of real smart things. And Oz Guinness is a great defender of uh, of the faith, and he is a uh, uh, a great writer, a prolific writer, lots of books. But probably the book that Oz will do is will be Dust of Death. That's probably his greatest achievement, I would I would say, and that is an examination of the 1960s. Uh, it's a uh, basically it's a uh, he goes through and he breaks down all the fundamental elements of the 1960s counterculture. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very, very good book. Uh, but we'll probably do that one here and give him some time. Oh, I just I just read something about him that's, uh, you know what? Well, I'm glad I'm a critical thinker and I, I look at the assumptions now. 
I've always been a critical thinker. I didn't know what it was called, looking at the assumptions. Sure, sure, looking okay. at the assumptions. Yeah, uh, he actually um, was a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution. Is that right? The Brook. Yeah, you'd have to do some research into the Brookings Institution. That that uh-huh. may, that's something for digital. Okay. We oh, is, is that, it's okay. We're not going to do that here. We'll do that no, over digital. No, we're not. But that is a shady think tank out of Washington. Oh, it is. Is that right? Oh, okay. yeah. All right. All right. There you go. Yeah, well, Schlossberg himself worked for the CIA. Yeah, so, which yeah. I which I didn't know, and that was surprising. Yeah, yep, yep. No, and it did, yeah. Yep. So, uh, yeah, there you go. So, uh, some interesting stuff here. So, Salisbury talks about idols, okay? So, we mm-hmm. talked about what an idol is. Idol is something that's on the top of your hierarchy there. It's not God. All idols belong to either nature or to history. So, this is a big, it's kind of a, an interesting point here, okay? So, he's going to give us, he gives us two categories, but then he eventually gives us a third category, right? And so we have the first, we have idols of history, idols of nature, and then he brings in a third category, which he calls the social world. Yeah. Right? And so I I really... um, This is a huge summarization, by the way. Oh, absolutely. It is a huge, (laughs) absolutely. This couple of sentences... Oh, there's no question. There's a lot more thought here oh there's a substantial amount of thought here <laughs> uh substantial this amount. dumbs down a whole lot of that chapter yeah no it really does it really does so as far as the book is concerned we have eight chapters in the book all right so eight chapters so as far as the uh the idols he's gonna six of the chapters are uh breaking down uh idols in different areas so there is one chapter on um there is one chapter on the idols of nature uh, and that's chapter four. There's also a chapter on the idols of history, and that is chapter number one. Uh, but then there are four other idols. There are idols of humanity. These are all, and I think these are what they would call in the social world, right? So these would be idols of the social world. So there's idols of humanity, okay? Uh, and that would be basically humans putting themselves onto the throne, right? Yeah. We talked about like humans putting themselves. Or other, or other people. Or other people, right? So yeah. this is where humans being above God, yep. right? The concept of a human being being either being in that position of a deity. Right. Uh, and then you have chapter number three, which is idols of mammon, right? Money. money. You got it. Money. Yay. Money, 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 money. Right? <laughs> yeah, there you go, man. So, hey, Dave Ramsey's a Christian, and that's a, uh, his his show uses that song. Oh, they do? Yeah, yeah, right. I like uh, Lyle Lovett, right? You know, have you heard Lyle Lovett? You know, he's got that uh, M-O-N. Is that right? I think it's M-O-N-E-Y. He spells it out. Right? Remember that nine-year gap between you and me? Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess so, man. That's right, man. You got to go out and get yourself some hot wild. Yeah, I mean, I've heard of him, but, you know, he's, he's right there with Michael Bolton. I don't have his record. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Michael Bolton, man. Somewhere, hey, man. You know, somewhere in like a dark room somewhere, okay? You know, you got like Lyle Lovett, like uh, probably the old folks' home, right? It's like somewhere out in the middle of LA, you know, you got like David Fincher and Lyle Lovett and like Michael Bolton. They're all sitting around getting the diaper changed and they're like, well, hey, you know, I'm <laughs> thinking, man, they got the middle aged people hanging around. With that much money by the finest diaper changers in the world. <laughs> I don't know what that looks like. There's got to be an unspoken assumption there somewhere. <laughs> I'm not sure where it is. Maybe. <laughs> so we have idols of mammon, that's money. And uh, then we also have, uh, we have idols of power, which in a way is kind of the same thing if you think about it. Pretty much. Pretty much. Now, money definitely. Money and power. So absolutely, you have uh, the idols of money, idols of power, and then you have idols of religion. Right, and that's an interesting one. I think that you'll probably have a lot to pull out of that one. 
Uh, and so, uh, and so very much, those are all part of the social world. Uh, and so, uh, for example, here I'll say, the whole of creation falls into these two categories. Because I would put all of those social categories into the nature category. Because the category of nature is going to describe what we see in the present, right? It comes down to the present and the past, right? Because we live within time, right? So we live within time. So for, as, because we're not spiritual beings, you know, we're physical beings. So we live within time. So to be, to live within time is to either be currently present or you can be in the past, right? Like if I sit here and I think about, uh, like my phone just gave me a notification. There's pictures of my kids when they're little babies, yeah, right? right? So I can go back and I can I can visualize when my kids were babies, and I can think about my life how as it existed 20 years ago or 15 years ago. Okay. So that we when we that happens, we say that we're living in the past. Yeah. Right. So or I can be present, and if I'm present, then I am with the nature. You know, the trees created this book. So that means like your your idols can what change over time if they're in nature. Well, no, but it means like if, for example, in in like um uh, for example, so um uh the trees that made this book or the strip mines that mined the metals that created the um, chips that run my uh, that run my tablet. Okay. So what he's saying is that all idols belong to either nature or to history. And so when we talk about, for example, uh, the church, right, we say, okay, well, what are the idols of religion, right? Well, those idols are going to be found by contemplating the past or they're going to be found right now in a real physical manifestation. So all the idols are either belong to nature or to history, and all of creation falls into these two categories, all right? And so the reason why, okay, the reason why this is important, all right, there's no other place in which man can turn to to find a substitute for God. Okay. Right? So if you're going to be speaking to a non-believer and you're trying to speak to someone about um, about God, right, you need to understand that they have placed something other than God on their life, and that comes from either history or it comes from nature. And so the first thing that you can do is you have to find out what is the fundamental false presupposition about history that that or or about nature that you can confront this person with so it's the same idea then like like uh whether you're an evolutionist or you're a christian they both have faith they both require faith to believe in yeah so effectively let's say this so if i'm going to talk to someone and uh say uh, uh we're going to talk about um history yeah and I can say to someone that, well, I want to talk to you about the Bible because uh, I think that uh, the Bible is the most important book in, in terms of a historical, uh, in terms of a historical book, uh, because it contains the word of a living God uh, yeah. that uh, exists outside of time, and okay. so that's very important. So I think the Bible is extremely important for history. And the person can say, well, that's silly. Uh, you know, the Bible has nothing to do with history, and uh, you know why the, and. and Someone who uh, would uh, go to the Bible to learn about history will be doing it all wrong. And I would say to that person, well, where would you go? What would you do if you wanted to find out about history? Where would you go? And the person might say, well, you'd have to read, uh, you'd have to read a book about a particular uh, historical period, and then you would have to uh, look at the events within that period to learn about the period itself. 
Okay. And so then I could say to that person, so what you're saying to me is that the answers as to why a particular historical period is important, that those those answers, the answer to that question, why, those answers are found within the period of history itself? That's what you're saying? And the person would say, yeah, that's what I'm saying. And I would say, are you aware that there is absolutely zero proof for that that for that statement, that it's an assumption that you think is true, but reality is it's not it is it may be true but the reality is it's no greater or less true than me saying that the god of history exists outside of time and that all of history is dictated and related to a living present well that simple argument right there places you guys on the exact same playing field you're just picking different books in different yes. periods of time and what you're doing is you well you're picking your assumption you're saying hey i have an unprovable assumption which is that god exists and you also have an un- unprovable assumption which is that the answers to history lie within history itself and so those are two very different assumptions and neither one is provable so this person may or may not come to believe in god but what and I can't force them to believe. But right. what I can do is I can at least point out to them that they that their attitude towards God is based on an unprovable assumption. And if they're going to start walking around waving the finger in the air like they just don't care, right? And they're going to start doing that and they're going to start telling everybody around them that unprovable assumptions are true. Well, then they need to start thinking about God. They need to start thinking about Jesus and they need to start thinking about salvation because that's the area they're living in, which is the area that we're all living in. Yeah, we are. Right. And so to be able to call out those unspoken assumptions is exactly where Christians need to be. Uh, We need to be able to take each individual issue, hold it up to the light and examine it individually, piece by piece. And that's what we're going to do here. It may take us about six million years, but uh, every we went over this. You got thirty days. We got thirty <laughs> days, man, and it's going to be one wonderful journey. So, looking forward to it. And uh, thank you for joining us today. Can't wait to uh, dive into chapter number one, Idols of History. We will see you next time. Thank you for joining Tom and Steve on the Blunderground Railroad. Join us next time as we seek to travel from ignorance to knowledge. And check out their other podcasts, Notes from Blunderground and the Digital Blunderground. See you next time.